Welcome to Answers to Life's Challenging Questions, helping to open your eyes to the many solutions to life's everyday challenges. We spend so much time looking for support and guidance on how to resolve the issues we face, it can be easy to get lost and overwhelmed. Join in as we provide practical and professional advice to help guide you towards overcoming your barriers and finding the hope that will reignite your passion and help you live a happy and healthy life. Now please welcome your hosts, Dr. Pamela Jordan and Dr. Craig Dossman. Welcome to Answers to Life's Challenging Questions. Hello, I'm Pamela Jordan. And I'm Dr. Craig Arthur Dossman. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Answers to Life's Challenging Questions. Over the next few weeks, we are going to be answering specific questions that you have asked us on Instagram and Facebook, as well as our phone line. And we want to encourage you to continue submitting those questions. And this particular week, we are focusing on family challenges, how to deal with family conflict resolution. In addition to many of us have encountered family grief as a result of COVID. So let's listen in as we proceed to our first question. I have a problem with my sibling. Um, I feel like there's nothing I can do to make this situation better. They're always accusing me of things I've never done. As a child, I was constantly instigating situations, manipulating people, even to the point of occasionally lying. But now that I'm older, how can I stop them, and I, them meaning their sibling, from assa- assassinating or slandering my character every time I'm around them? I'm no longer 15 to 21. I'm almost 50, extremely successful in my career and community. When is this going to stop? So I guess uh, somebody's asking, how do they get their sibling to stop treating them like a manipulative teenager, even though they're almost 50 and doing well? There's a famous neuropsychologist by the name of Daniel Amen, and he made the statement, he said, we might age chronologically, one, two, three, four, five, six, but he says, all we are We are simply children who have been pushed through life. Mm. And all of our experiences, current experiences, and future experiences has everything to do with what happened in our childhood. And, And so we're just basically children. So normally now with all the different types of therapies and theories on therapies and intervention. Now, even Freud, Sigmund Freud and others, that they're all going back to the childhood, Mm. the early childhood. What happened? What happened in the childhood? I wrote an article this past week dealing with words and the power of words and what was said to us as children has a powerful impression on who we are as adults. And the experience that we have as children, and even as siblings, the experience that we have is, as siblings, that's why we say in challenge parents, is uh, parents, be, be very careful of favoritism. Like if you have four or five children, be, be very careful 
of favoritism. And uh, this past week, Dr. Jordan, my wife watched the uh, the series about Aretha Franklin, and uh, it it I believe it had about seven or eight episodes, and it it gave us a picture of her, her childhood and the experience that she had to go through. And uh, being with a child when she was 12 years old, pregnant at 12, and uh, riding around with her father, sort of like on a bus, kind of like a caravan, and going to different places and preaching. But the things that she was exposed to as a child that she should not have been exposed to and how it affected her, her life. So things that happen to us as children, as we are growing up, if those experiences aren't dealt with or if they're not addressed, then it just into our adulthood. And I, I don't see anything wrong. In fact, I would even encourage that when people get into places like this, sometimes it's good to have, you know, like a family therapy or siblings, they come together and they sit around and they talk about, you know, these things. And sometimes to be under the context of therapeutic atmosphere, but they could just sit around as just siblings and they need to just come together, but come together with agreements. Because I say, anytime you have a meeting, if you don't set aside or set up some agreements, there will be confusion. Talk about, you know, like take, for instance, I might tell them, okay, now the first thing that we're going to do is that we will agree to disagree respectfully. Uh, we're not going to shame or blame. Uh, if you want to speak, raise your hand. Uh, listen to that person. Uh, it's not just your way or this way. It could be both ways and something else. And so I think it's, it's important to lay perimeters down and so that everyone would feel safe speaking. But, you know, anytime you get into these kind of atmosphere, if you don't talk about these things and you just keep them inside you, they're going to boil over mm -hmm. and you're going to end up saying some things that you wish you wouldn't say. And that session is going to be worse than you ever thought. But I, I think whenever you are conflicted, with family problems. That's why normally I, I usually always operate in this type of uh, thinking. I would say whenever there's a problem, solve it as soon as possible with as, as few people as possible. But if you have taken things through this journey of your life and uh, we hold these things because it's children, you know, we're not we're children being pushed through life based upon good experiences. And so these are matters that's unresolved, you know, come together, get together in a safe atmosphere, set up those perimeters for your meeting, resolve those issues. Because when a person dies, you know, if, if something happens, you don't want to live with regret and all these things, shame and all these type of things. It's important to talk it over. Dr. Jordan, what do you think? I totally agree with you. I think it's important that, you know, you sit down immediately, that you set boundaries, like you said, um, as you enter into a discussion with your sibling or family member. Um, for me, I've, I've actually had a situation similar to this. It's more my parents 
who still see me as a child (laughs) and, you know, anything that I do, they still see me as this young child or, you know, I feel like every time I come into my parents' house, I'm 17 years old again, dealing with that dynamic. And I actually, for the longest, my mother and I had conflicts communicating and After a while, I was able to sit down with my mom and we kind of talked about it. And I'm like, mom, you know, I'm a woman now. I have a child. And she started treating me more as an adult. We were able to communicate and I could ask her questions from one woman to another and ask her questions from the perspective of you are a mother. You know, can you give me motherly advice? And to the point that now we're literally best friends. Um, My dad, on the other hand, you know, he's still very male dominant, like he's the head of the house. He's not so willing to fluctuate. He's going to see all of us as children and we are to always obey him and respect him on that level, which we do. But yeah, I totally understand what this listener is going through. And I agree with you, Dr. Dossman. It's an imperative that you sit down immediately with your sibling and begin to hash out what's going on. It oftentimes has nothing to do with you. It's oftentimes something that that individual, that sibling is going through on their own. And they're basically just referring their pain off on you. You know, they might see what you're doing and see what you're accomplishing in your life. And they might wish that their life were what you're doing, you know, and I'm, I'm just making this assumption. I don't know anything about you or your sibling, but oftentimes they're projecting their frustration and their anger with themselves on you. And so it's important that you really sit down and, you know, get uh, understanding, set the boundaries and begin talking to the sibling because um, you'd be amazed at, you know, how much you actually might have in common and some of the things that you both might be challenged with in your workplace or, you know, in your family or in your career. And so, um, yes, I, I totally agree. Sit down and talk and begin to hash it out. And if you need a mediator or a counselor, you know, definitely seek out one. Um, as Dr. Dossman stated, keep it as minimal as possible. Don't have like five and six people sitting down, looking on and involved in the discussion. It should just be between you and your sibling and then whoever you desire to be the mediator for that conversation. And I think what's also important to say lastly is that when you meet, you ought to be able to sit down, answer this question. What is the purpose of this meeting? Why are we meeting? The purpose of this meeting is for us to have a better relationship as brothers and sisters as it relates to an incident that happened to us in childhood. Or maybe it might just be me, my perspective. I had an incident that happened to me when I was growing up with you all, and I want to talk about that incident so I can move forward. And so it might be from the context that I I will need you all to help me to move forward in this. I can't move forward without your help. There might be some forgiveness and then, you know, some willingness to also accept responsibility 
maybe I played a part in participating in this or whatever. And so where do we go from here? But if you're going to meet, don't call a meeting and there's no agenda, there's no purpose. Could tell me <laughs> that's where you're going to get the Tower of Babel. You know, get confusion. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. What's, What's the, next, the question? next question? All right. Thank you, guys. These are great answers. Um, so we've got another one um, dealing with uh, family. So it says, please help me. I'm dealing with the recent loss of my brother, and I'm angry. I'm also happy that he's no longer suffering. Is this normal? Why am I so mad at everyone all the time? What's going on with me? Yes, absolutely. And I'm actually going to pass this on to Dr. Dossman because he did a full podcast on grief and the stages of grief. And that uh, stage of being angry is one of the stages that we tend to go through when we're grieving the loss of a loved one. So you're not strange. It's not unusual. We all go through it. Dr. Dossman, would you like to? Thank you so, so much. That's uh very important, and I'm glad that you immediately went to uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler's Ross. Uh, yes. Those those five five stages of, of grief, and uh, that's exactly where uh, I think that we should go in responding to this question, because when you look at those stages, those five stages are number one, denial. Number two, anger. And that's what I I believe. That's where the individual that asked this question immediately, that's where this person is at this time. My impression, just initial impression. And then you have, again, number one, denial is the first stage. Whenever you hear about uh, a loved one's death or demise, there's denial, then there's anger then there's bargaining, Mm -hmm. then there's depression, and then there's acceptance. Let me just quickly summarize those those, uh, five so that you can see where you are because I guess uh, thinking about what I call God's motivational theory, God's motivational theory says, views life as a, a steps, and we're going up certain rungs of that step. And he says, but in life, people get stuck at a step. And if you're stuck at a step, then you cannot continue to grow or move on in life. And and I believe that it appears that you are stuck. It's not a bad step, but you're stuck at the step of anger. But we need to move on to the other steps so we can have a complete healing. Anger is a part of the process but it's not the only. So let's do a quick summary of those five. First is denial. Denial is the first of the five stages of grief. Uh, it, it helps us survive the loss. Listen, grief, denial actually helps us survive the loss. Uh, it is a coping mechanism. It is, it's uh, to escape the reality because when we hear something, uh, the first thing we want to do is escape it. We're not ready to deal with it. We're in a state of what I call shock and denial. Denial helps us to, to uh, pace our feelings. 
we don't want to just accept it. We need some time to sort of like get ready for it. We're not ready. It's rushed upon us. So the way we want to control it is to deny it. We want to slow it down. We want to pace our feelings. It is nature's way of letting us handle this news. As the denial begins to fade away, then true feelings begin to surface. Then the second stage is anger. And I believe that's the stage that you were referring to in your question. Now, anger is a necessary stage for the healing process. You have to be willing to feel your anger. You have to accept your anger, even though it might seem endless. Mm -hmm. The more you begin to feel it, the more it will dissipate and begin to heal. Anger has no limits. It can extend to family, co-workers, and even God. Maybe you might have been in one of those places in your life where you begin to question God. God, why my grandmother? Why my son? Why my daughter? Don't the adults, shouldn't they die first before their children? And so we begin to question, and underneath that anger is pain. It is natural to feel deserted. It's natural to feel abandoned. Uh, So I want to normalize anger. But we live in a society that fears anger. Anger is just another expression of your indication and love for the deceased. Again, anger is just an expression of your absolute love for the deceased. Then number three is bargaining. So before loss, you are willing to do anything if only they could be spared. You're saying to yourself, please God, you're bargaining. I'll never be angry with my wife again if you let her live. We want to go back in time with our, our, our what I call our would have, I should have, uh, ifs. I, if, if I would have been there, if I would have done that, if I didn't say that, if I didn't do that, if I would have known that he or she would have done that, they wouldn't have got shot. My loved one wouldn't have got been killed if I would have been there to protect them. So we're beginning to bargain because we want to go back in time. Uh, And so we're anything to keep from feeling the pain of that loss. And then number four is depression. After bargaining, our attention turns to the present and and grief enters our lives at a more deeper level. This, This depressive stage feels as if it will last forever. It is important to note that depression is not a sign of mental illness. Understand that. Depression, when you have the loss of a loved one and they have been, ha, ha, however the situation, how they died, uh, depression is not a sign of mental illness. Uh, it is the appropriate response 
to a great loss, we withdraw from life, left in a fog, intent, sadness, wondering if there's any point in going on, is a normal and natural response. Then last but not least, we come to the stage of acceptance. Acceptance has been often confused with the notion that you're all right or okay. Now, this is what I like so much about this definition of of acceptance. People think that acceptance means you're okay now with the death. You're okay with the with the loss. This is not the case. Mm-hmm. This stage is about accepting the reality that your loved one is physically gone and you're recognizing that this reality is a permanent reality. I told my wife, I said, but but for those of us of faith, we believe further than that because we believe that we will see them again. Yes. Just from the normal expression of acceptance is that we come with the reality that this loved one is no no longer with us and we must learn to live now in a world where our loved one is missing. And that's why I encourage, you know, people to go to funerals. That's why we have funerals. And then that's why we often, in some cases, we have open caskets. Uh, there was a time back in earlier days where you see how they did like family portraits of the family. You go down there and then you pay a photographer and take portraits. Well, in the early times, they did that with death. I mean, they dress their loved ones up and they take a portrait, set them in a chair or whatever, because it's it's almost in a sense as if the, it, it's a reality, not necessarily saying that they're celebrating the death, but it's a part of life. So acceptance then is that simply when the loved one has passed on and they've died, that we've learned now uh, that we're going to now learn to exist in, in the world where our loved one is missing. In other words, we've got to move forward. I, I share with some of my individuals that I've worked with is I use a heart. I said, look, I said, put your hand over your heart. Think of your heart as a an apartment with many rooms. And for all those that you hold dear, and uh, you realize that they're no longer with you physically, but yet, you can, they will always be a part of your, your heart. The metaphor for love is a heart. And so that you will always have feelings and you will always keep them close. And I shared in our other broadcasts, I wear a watch. I have things I wear every day. I always keep something close to me to a loved one who has gone on, who is no longer in my presence. I cannot go and see them. I cannot go and drive and talk to them. They're not here. That's the reality. And so I have to learn how to move on in life with the reality that while I love them, I need to park them in my heart and put them in a safe place where they will always be remembered and cherished and loved and honored and respected like our forefathers and and our foremothers that we remember them and we honor them with respect. So anger is natural. Anger is an important process of grief, 
but it's not the only process. So we want to encourage you to keep moving because you don't want to be stuck there. You need to move on to the next stages until you get to the stage of acceptance. And so you can move on with your life and be fruitful because they want you to be successful. And we want you to also be successful. Yes, yes. We definitely want you to be successful and we want you to um, move past these stages of grief. And don't be alarmed if you find yourself in the stage of anger for a long period of time because everybody grieves differently. And so for you, it might take six months to a year to get through from one stage to the next stage. Don't judge yourself. Don't get down on yourself over it. Don't allow other people to impose their ideas of how you should be grieving. Don't let people be like, girl, you still grieving? You need to get over it. No, take your time, grieve and allow yourself to process the loss of your loved one. And don't get down on yourself over it. Make sure that you go through each stage of grief, because what happens when you fail to really go through each of those stages, you know, whether it takes you one week or 10 weeks or a month or 10 years, you know, make sure you go through them, because if you don't, you will find yourself falling deep into a point of depression and find yourself getting to a point where it becomes extreme and you find yourself going through some extreme forms of emotions. And at that time, you need to seek help and seek someone. Take your time. Uh, Don't let anyone rush you through the process that you need to grieve. As Dr. Dossman said, make sure that you find things that you can utilize to, to reflect the love that you had for that individual uh, your brother. Um, for me, my grandmother, when she died, I, I had a music box of hers. And, you know, I have that still on my shelf today. And every time I walk past it with her picture, you know, I reflect on her and the good times that we shared together and, you know, all the things that she imparted in my life. So make sure that you keep something to remember your brother by. It will help you through the process of grief. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Answers to Life's Challenging Questions. We want to thank you for listening in as we answer your questions that you have had over the last few months. And we want to encourage you to continue asking your questions so that we can provide you with some advice and answers to the challenges that you are experiencing in your life every day. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Answers to Life's Challenging Questions. For more information and resources, be sure to join us on Facebook to connect directly with your hosts, as well as others just like you who are looking for answers to life's challenging questions. You can find us at Facebook.com slash answers to life's questions. Until next time.